Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Minds Matter. This week, um, I'm Ava. I am alone in the studio in Amsterdam, um, but you might have already been able to hear Beth chuckling in the background, so she's uh, she's, she's still here from down under. <laughs> um, but yes, Beth is on Zoom with us as usual. Uh, Noah wasn't able to make it today, so it's just going to be the two of us. Um, and this week we're taking on a pretty big subject. So we're talking about love. Um, and we just wanted to preface the episode by addressing some of the issues with this research um, in general in psychology and neuroscience. Um, we pretty quickly realized when we were looking into it, especially the stuff that kind of comes up first on Google, is that a lot of it... Um, looks at differences between men and women and kind of has yeah. this implicit or even sometimes seemingly explicit idea that a relationship and a romantic relationship is between one man and one woman who have yeah, just specific gender roles. Um, and a lot of research seems to kind of press on the fact that these gender roles are things that are determined by your sex. And obviously yeah. that... Uh, is something that is pretty controversial and something that I think Beth and I at least don't really agree with. Um, so that's just something important to remember. And the thing also with a lot of the research that we're going to talk about today um, and the ones that we're focusing on are things that we really think are just human and not necessarily related to gender or your gender, the person that you're with, or even the type of relationship that you have if you have one partner, oh, how many, many yeah. partners. Um, like being in love always provokes some type of reaction and falling out of love and breakups always hurt you no matter who you are. So um, that's important to remember. Yeah. Um, but another thing also is that with this research, sometimes it is really implicit what they're looking at and who they're studying. But yeah. because of this, um, it's actually these power structures that exist of what is um, normal, like because they're invisible, it actually in a way seems to give it more power because you're just assuming that this is how something yeah. is yeah. and you end up looking for things that might not be there. Um, and this, this was kind of a big issue in um, psychological research. In general, there's uh, an article that discusses this, which we will link in um, in our website. Um, <laughs> but it talks about how heteronormative psychological research is. And even when um, the American Psychological Association, the APA, um, they really pushed for the recognition of same-sex marriage specifically and wrote a lot of amicus briefs, so like those, those uh, legal documents adding support for... Um, or added information for a specific case. Um, they wrote a lot of amicus briefs when uh, the U.S. was deciding on this, and it was the most amicus brief th that the APA has actually ever written. Oh, wow. Yeah, but the thing is that they chose to um, support this specific act of le legislation, and it's, like, in the gay community, uh -huh. like, the idea of... Um, the idea of marriage being the thing that you fought for was actually in a way controversial because it was subscribing to these traditional values. 
And so it was still, you know, psychology saying that this is how a relationship should be. So also talking about which relation styles, which relationship styles like monogamy are okay and are normative. So this is all just to say that (laughs) (laughs) this is just one big disclaimer (laughs) to say that, um, we're going to try to focus on things that are human, but that, you know, psychology is known for not being the most um, subversive of disciplines. Um, Um, I also think while we're talking about this, it's good to also mention that a lot of also research into the topic of love is a lot of research that becomes like clickbait and these kind of things. Cause mm -hmm. of course it's what we're, you know, everyone is interested in it. Everyone experiences it. Um, so yeah, again, along kind of what Ava's been saying, a lot of the research that we're also going to discuss today can jump to kind of conclusions without really having the science behind of it all for like a good, like Buzzfeed (laughs) article. And so I think, yeah, it's like, yeah, an interesting topic to look into, but yeah, when we're doing this, there's a, a lot of stuff to consider and if you read some of the papers that we post or, you know, come across this when you're doing your own reading, I think it's, it's good to remember. Yeah, definitely a lot of the conclusions um, seem a bit speculative, um, but that's yeah. also something that we will talk about. Um, but it is true that love and romantic love, as it's been investigated, seems to be a pretty universal thing across cultures. So, um a 2009 study that looked at 48 countries, they did find that there was kind of this apparent universality in um, the construct and that everyone has something akin to romantic love and there are pretty clear behavioral markers that I'm sure everyone has experienced at some point um, of this. <laughs> so it it does seem to be um, more of a universal thing. And um, before we get into the the meat of what we're doing a lot of um the brain research shows that um romantic love is actually really similar to maternal love and that most of the same brain regions are involved so reward systems and attachment systems and similar hormones as well so um, some researchers argue that this maternal love and parental love um system in the brain which obviously is useful for reproduction was kind of co-opted to then allow for pair bonding and raising your child and stuff like this um but it obviously doesn't necessarily have to be tied to reproduction but that it seems to be quite some researchers even argue that it's a basic emotion and the fact that it's an emotion even is contested so it's all very (laughs) muddy guys We're we're working through it personally and and academically, um, but we're gonna we're gonna go chronologically today. So we're gonna start off with talking about attraction. So um, we were talking about this a little bit this morning. Me and Beth, you know, she's she's in isolation again. She yeah. is on the dating apps and yeah. this research into attraction. It's imp- like those dating apps, they pay money for people to investigate this stuff. Like, so yeah, maybe you can give us a little rundown yeah, and of what you've been seeing. So we're back in lockdown in Melbourne. Yay. Second lockdown. Well, my third lockdown. Um, so naturally I was like, well, won't be meeting anyone at bars. Oh, um, <laughs> 
I'll need to need to get an app. So yeah, I downloaded Hinge. Um, and it's also interesting because yeah, I've been on dating apps in New York, Amsterdam and Melbourne. And the difference, like I was like telling Ava, it's like you can really tell um, it's Where you are. an Australian, yeah, Australian <laughs> aesthetic. Um, yeah, but it's funny. So you're on this app and yeah, I mean, I, everyone listening probably knows what Hinge is, but you see six photos um, and you can like like and respond to it. Um, and yeah, so the Hinge is like, oh, we'll also give you, give you prompts so you know you can get to know their personality a bit but I mean that's not selling us is it really <laughs> like let's let's be honest yeah yeah um I mean and that's one of the keys right yeah, is not is really. the it's... the physical attraction component yeah um so yeah that actually brings me back to the fact that we might actually need to define what love is before we get into this um, so <laughs> one, which is really difficult, but one thing that's used often that was actually used in the paper that talked about how heteronormative psychological research is, was, um, something from Jankowiak and Helen Fisher from 1992, <laughs> which they used to define love in this context of trying not to be so heteronormative, but yeah. it was, um, quote, an intense attraction that involves the idealization of the other within an erotic context with the expectation of enduring for some time in the future. Um, and there are already two issues with that. The first is that the erotic context, I mean, I think for most people, it is a really important component of attraction. Like that's what Tinder is based off. That's what Hinge is based off, yeah. even though they pretend to be about the personality. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are asexual people who also yeah, love. Yeah. yeah, who also crave intimacy, but not necessarily in an erotic way. And also this idea of idealizing the other. It's actually something that happens a lot more in Western contexts than in um, more collectivistic societies. And yeah. um, in studies show that in um, the West, if you idealize your partner, the more you kind of put them on a pedestal, the more you're like, this is a predictor of how long your relationship will be and the well-being of your relationship. But in other cultures, it's really not that important. Yeah. Um, but I think that this idea of wanting someone for yeah. something sexual or just something intimate and wanting it to last for a long time, I think that that's something key to what um, we're really talking about. But back yeah. to attraction, like let's, I mean, the physical stuff is important. So yeah. <laughs> the physical stuff, what do you, what do you like to see, Beth? Because that's, there's studies on this. Um. What do I like to see? Well, can I say what I don't like to see? Yes. Is that helpful? <laughs> yes, for if, science. If, <laughs> if I'm on an app and someone has a photo with their shirt off, I'm really put off. And I know mm. a lot of girls I know are put off by that. Um, that's like a, a big, a big no. Also, you don't, I don't know if you guys have races as the same way we do here, but also me and my friends have a joke like, if a guy has a photo of him at the races, it's it's a no. What are the races? <laughs> oh, like horse, horse racing. Oh, do you guys that in Canada? Like go. No, that sounds that sounds very British. We have. Okay. I, I think in Canada there's a similar concept with like fishing. Because <laughs> there's always a guy. Like there's always a guy who oh, holds up a fish. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the things that I 
that I definitely like when I'm on the app, I'm like, okay, no. Okay. I think it's easier to figure out what I'm not attracted to. Okay. But that's interesting because it actually seems like those things, even though they're, they're being portrayed through something visual, they're actually more about the personality. Yeah. True. Like, because um, I mean, I mean, according to science, like (laughs) everyone is attracted to like, um, to like fit bodies and like people who are in, you know, their reproductive age or what, however you want to put it. But maybe there's kind of based on culture, there might be kind of an inverted you where there's a certain point at which like you can tell someone is fit, someone looks good, but then if they're showing it off, then that's that's not okay. Yeah, that's their personality. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you feel like yeah. that's something cultural? Because I feel like Australians are always on the beach. And like it's Yeah. <laughs> I think it it could be cultural. And the other thing is I've like been actively trying to stop my old patterns. So I'm like, oh, oh cool skater boy. No, 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 even though obviously that is what I'm usually attracted to. So I'm, you know, this is a different hinge journey for me this time. <laughs> But that also that also speaks to something important about initial attraction, which you're tr- which you understand and you're trying to avoid, which is that yeah. even though there are kind of like these two um, folk psychology notions of who goes together, like opposites attract, and then birds of a feather flock together, like both kind of make sense. But science actually shows that like birds of a feather, so things that people who are similar to you and also things that are familiar. So similar to things that you've lived in the past, like those are things that did to that. Exactly. That you will be um, more drawn to. And so a lot of research also shows that um, people who end up together, they're similar in like a lot of ways. And even if your name is more similar to someone that is a predictor of whether you will be together. Really? And that's, yeah, that's how no. important similarity is. Yeah, because oh, wow. especially in especially in the West, which is where a lot of studies are done, yeah. um, because a really important factor is like with with people that you're close to is how similar they feel to you. So you really want someone who is like you and that increases as um, your relationship progresses as well. But the right. name thing is so crazy. <laughs> yeah um yeah. wow yeah and also in terms of like in terms of age people are mm-hmm. often with people who are the same age and even race yeah. so that's one of the reasons that there are maybe fewer mixed race couples than people would like or some people <laughs> would like I don't know um but that people who end up in mixed race couples they're also people who grew up in multicultural areas because it is also right. a familiarity thing. They used to. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And so when you see someone that you're <laughs> attracted to on the on the dating sites, <laughs> or maybe when you're in person with someone, like, do, yeah. how do you feel when these things happen? Uh... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I feel like I'm really being put on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I'm segueing. I'm segueing. Um, I think. I mean, you feel good. You feel excited. Excited. You feel happy. Hope. I don't know. Even like, could you say hopeful? I don't know. There's something. These are the kind of things I think that 
come to mind. I don't know if you would say the same. Well, have you ever been on a date where you get taken to like a scary movie or like a roller coaster? No, I'm not an activity date girl, so. <laughs> but have you heard people say like um I feel like it's it's also kind of like folk I don't want to say wisdom, but folk psychology <laughs> of like take someone take someone somewhere where they get stressed. Not stressed, but where they feel intense feelings because that will translate onto you. No, I've ne- I actually have never heard of this. Oh, really? You've yeah. never heard guys be like, take her to a scary movie. No. Oh, it's so this is this is a thing that like that people do because I mean the idea is that like one of you will jump into the other's arms out of fear or something. But it's actually something that happens. Um, and it has to do with how people appraise relation or not relationships, um, emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. so a lot of people intuitively, you feel that you, um, see something scary and then you react to it because it's scary. But actually there's, there's a lot of different theories of how it works, but the idea is that you actually construct your emotions and that sometimes when you um, feel something really intensely and you're not really sure what to attribute it to, you'll just attribute it to something. So you'll put a label on it that's not necessarily the source of it. So there's um, a really famous study, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, that is, I will link it in our page as well, but um, where they injected people with adrenaline, I believe, and they didn't tell some people that they were that they were having like this this <laughs> adrenaline. Is it an old study? Yeah, it's an old study. Yeah. And um in some cases they had someone come in who was like a little bit annoying and made them angry yeah. and then they got like super angry at the person because they didn't realize. But in cases where people were told you're going to get injected with this and you might feel like a little bit stressed, they were much less angry than than normal because you're able to label it onto something yeah and so the same thing happens um with like well I want to say like the way that in science is called arousal but it's just like it's just like feeling excited but it's not really like a sexual arousal um but there's this concept of misattribution of arousal where um if you're stressed so one also famous example of this is they um do you know what the capilano bridge is knowing any of the, the things today what's that um it's no it's it's a it's in canada it's like this really oh, okay. really long suspension bridge um that goes across a canyon and it's and it swings um yeah. and it's oh. it's scary and it's stressful yeah. and so they did a study these ubc profs did a study where they um they had like a researcher in the middle of the bridge um Mm -hmm. and one of them I think I'm not sure if both they had an attractive one and a less attractive one which like those studies Mm. I don't know (laughs) how they label these women as attractive versus unattractive but they did this study where they had um a woman standing in the middle of the bridge and they also had a control where they had her standing like on normal land and men who met her in the middle of the bridge when they were like swinging, they were more likely to um, to rate her as more attractive, and they were more likely to call her because they also did a manipulation where they gave 
these men oh, her wow. number. Yeah. But so for a long time, the idea was, okay, so you want to, you, you want to take your date somewhere where they're freaked out. Right. Yeah. Um, because this misattribution of arousal will be misattributed to the fact that they, they are into you. But yeah. further research actually shows that it really depends on how the person initially feels about you. Because, oh. um, yeah, so they did another study where um, they had, I think it was all men running on treadmills. Um, mm-hmm. So this, again, idea of like your heart beating and this kind yeah. of um, intense arousal. Um, and they rated different women on for their attractiveness. Again, this is like the heteronormativity <laughs> yeah. of this doing that? research. Um, <laughs> but so for attractive women, when they were all sweaty and like, like palpitating (laughs) they they rated them as more attractive and they were a lot more interested but for women that they rated as unattractive it further drove them to think that they were even less attractive so it went in the opposite way yeah so however you're feeling it kind of like intensifies it oh okay so either way yeah so if someone's kind of annoying to you if you're super i mean i think we've all had that experience also if someone's kind of annoying you're gonna be like like, if you're on the middle of a bridge with them you'll be like you need to go (laughs) (laughs) um yeah but so to people who are out there thinking about first dates you know distanced first dates distanced keep that in mind because it could help but make sure that they like you because otherwise it will make things (laughs) it's gonna yeah backfire yeah. yeah so that's some advice from from the minds matter crew to, to all our singles out there and for you beth you're yeah. in lockdown but maybe you can go on a bridge yeah <laughs> distance on the bridge exactly all right uh, dear, what if- so once we've gotten past attraction yeah, you might you might actually at? fall in love yeah and um that's quite an intense period. So um, when you're in love, there's a lot of chemicals that are being produced. Um, And like just for people to know, there is a lot of the research um, that we were talking about that was particularly, let's call it problematic, um, is a lot of research on um, hormones. So on neurotransmitters, uh between men and women like the differences between them and you'll probably find that we'll we will link actually some of the more problematic stuff just so people can see it yeah um but that a lot of conclusions are drawn about um the differences between men and women's hormones when they're in love and the different periods of of intensity of growth of these hormones um but typically there are um attachment hormones involved so like oxytocin for women but vasopressin for men which is actually they're pretty similar um but an important component of actually really when you're falling in love is um, an increase in dopamine and so dopamine it's actually really important for learning like it seems like something that can really can really change what you're desiring and your motivations to actually go for something. And this speaks to kind of this, this distinction between wanting something and liking something. But yeah, so dopamine essentially motivates you to continue to perform activities. And this dopamine is really, really activated at the beginning of a relationship. Um, And it really motivates you to pursue rewards. Um, And something that is really activated. And I think it's, yeah. 
the VTA, which is uh, addiction. Yeah. And then they have, um, so with this, there, a lot of the research then likens falling um, in love to an addiction mm-hmm. um, because of, yeah, the reward system is activated. We're getting all that dopamine rush that you do when you have an addiction. And like similar to the things we we're talking about in our first podcast when we spoke about TikTok and addiction. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of research that said that that's what falling in love is like and you know you have this rush and like you don't want to be you don't want to leave them you have like separation anxiety and yeah but Ava and I have been speaking about this earlier we think that this it's maybe not a great way to like have an analogy for for love Mm. um yeah because so one of the things so there's this woman Helen Fisher and I feel like we keep tearing apart her research um we will still collaborate now um but yeah she goes into all the reasons about why falling in love is like an addiction and one of the ones is like so if you like break up in the stage when you're so if you break up with someone in that middle stage when you're falling in love um it's like a withdrawal so like you're really depressed and like you're more likely to do outrageous things to win them back and like same thing if someone was addicted and they couldn't get get you know the drugs or whatever they they needed um so then she suggests like oh well treatments can be like removing things from that remind you of your partner or like physical exercise or making connections and keeping busy and she's like draws this conclusion that's the same thing that you do when you need to get over an addiction and like mm, well I think that those things number one are just make you can improve your mood like no matter what like you know if you yeah. have depression really any anything grief all of these things they're just like general tools for 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 well-being um so I don't really understand why why she makes this this con- this conclusion really I guess I mean I definitely also have issues with the idea that um the perfect analogy for what love is like is addiction but I mean on a from a subjective point of view from someone who's never actually been addicted to anything yeah um, (laughs) I I could see like the reasons that it does feel that way but obviously there's because even in this paper that again we will link she does argue for a physiological almost dependence, which is just, that's just not what happens. Like you don't have the same withdrawal from, from a breakup as you would with a heroin addiction or a Coke addiction. Um, But I think, and that's kind of, that's also this idea of like the usefulness of these types of comparisons with your phone, with um, yeah, with TikTok, with, I don't know, eating a bunch of chocolate like there are some things that you really want and you crave um but I mean this also speaks to kind of a broader discussion about addiction and mental health and the fact that things that are just normalized and that work in society even if in different contexts they could seem like addictions um yeah well it doesn't really matter because you're still functioning inside of the realm of what's okay um yeah but I do think it's true that when you're in love with someone or when you're falling in love, you, there is this 
really powerful pull and the reward system definitely goes yeah. into overdrive. Um, and that's the thing also about the dopamine system and the idea that it really alters learning is that um, these studies show that there's an area in the brain where if you're getting a reward that you expect, then there's not a lot of dopamine change. But if you're getting more reward than you wanted, then there's an increase. And then if it's less than you expect, there's a decrease. So there's the idea of like reward prediction errors. And this is really important to learning in general. But because yeah. of this, when you have this interaction with someone that you're that you're interested in, then your brain actually becomes altered in a way that makes those same um, actions easier because they were rewarding to you. And when there is an increase in dopamine, there's a strengthening in those types of connections. So it really speaks yeah. to this idea of action selection and setting different thresholds for action. So in a way, you know, it becomes easier to be with that person, to have remember this kind of intense pleasure and wanting it to be repeated because if you don't get more than what you wanted then yeah. you won't get that same response so but that's just kind of how the brain works in general and it's not necessarily because yeah, this is the brain uses the reward system in in a lot of things and I feel like we've mentioned it in previous episodes and like in future episodes the reward system will come up a lot and the other thing I think a good thing to remember is with these analogies is if you are addicted to heroin and you are taking heroin, there is nothing, there's nothing good <laughs> that is happening. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you are in love with someone and they're your partner, that is a, that like, hopefully <laughs> is yeah. a good thing. And like, I've, I feel like it can be quite dangerous to make, to make these. I mean, yeah. I mean, when I, you think of it that way, okay, well, when you're being with someone that you're in love with versus to when you're taking a drug, like we really can't say that, that these things are the same. And yeah, and the reward system is activated in, in a lot of things that we do. Yeah. I also think that that, that speaks to a cultural aspect as well because um, they've, done, they've done quite, like anthropologists and psychologists have done quite a lot of research into cultural differences in romantic love. And yeah. one thing is that there's kind of a contradiction in the fact that in um, in Europe and North America, in these what they call individualistic cultures, there is yeah. this like really intense idea of like fairy tale love and like like we talked about earlier, idealization of the other person and kind of this idea of like unity and partnership with that one perfect person. But at the same time, um, because these cultures are more individualistic, there is this like intense pullback from the person, what, from the partners as individuals to want to maintain their individuality and not want to depend too much on the other person. Yeah. And this actually results in um, people in the West saying that they're less satisfied with their romantic relationships than people in more collectivistic countries. Um, and the same goes for the way in which um, feelings develop over time. So um, one study looked at a lot of a lot of these cross-cultural studies look at the U.S. versus Japan. Um, I yeah. think because there were just some the first cultural psych researchers were from the U.S. and Japan or the big ones. Sorry, I don't want to make. <laughs> <the first ones. laughs> um, but there's like this these these two guys, Marcus and Kitayama, who are like the big cultural psych people but anyways I digress um so they did one study where they looked at um Americans and they were mostly like feeling very intense love at the beginning and feeling 
a lot of intimacy at the beginning, but then because they're really trying hard to maintain um, independence, there is more of an erosion of this intimacy over time. Um, Whereas in Japan, what what this article said, which was very intense, but it said (laughs) that um, at the beginning of a marriage, um, because you're in a collectivistic society and your bonds with the other people around you are really important as well. So it's not about who you choose to be with. It's just about who's there and who is important to you and who you have obligations towards. So the idea is that as a couple, you have obligations towards many people in your family and your broader social circle and especially your parents. And that this is really key um, for the well-being of your relationship is to take care of those other relationships. And it said that, that the course of the relationship changes because first you're not so intimate because you're taking care of these other relationships. Yeah. But when those people die, that's literally what it said. When those people die, then there's time for you to create intimacy with your husband or wife. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, it's just, it's just different. That's the thing is that romantic love is clearly something that's present, you know, in most if not all cultures, it seems quite universal yeah. also because of the links to um, parental love, but that there are these really important differences in the way that culture shapes your relationship and yeah, the way that culture affects yeah. what you're expecting as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, in, in these collectivistic cultures, there's also less of an emphasis. There's less of an emphasis on this fairy tale idea, but yeah. there was also research that showed that um, in Russia and Lithuania versus the U.S., mm-hmm. Russians fall in love much quicker than uh, how, Americans. So how do they? Is, how do you study that? They just ask people. So they ask people. Um, I think it was oh, they did like okay. a survey of like how soon would you say that you have fallen in love with someone? And okay. I think ninety percent of the respondents in Russia said that they had fallen in love in a month or less. Whereas in the U.S., yeah, in the U.S. it was two months to a year, and that was 58% of people. Oh, yeah, okay. And that's the thing also is that when you're talking about something like love, like what you're, we tried to describe it, but, and to set an actual definition of what it is, but, you know, it's, it is um, your culture and what you're expecting really does influence when you would say something like that, because you're shocked that people would, would say this after a month and that 90 percent and then i feel like in western culture saying i love you is like this big thing it's like did he say it did she like when will they say it all this stuff like oh what did they say back like you know we've got tv show everything is about that and um yeah i mean yeah in other cultures it doesn't have to be this emphasis on that and and then what does that mean because i feel like when we are ready to say I love you it's like yeah so much comes it comes with that like oh well that must be the one person then forever you know and all this this kind of kind of stuff and I feel like yeah and also I think you can be yeah maybe you are feeling love earlier than that that moment because I feel like I would say it like after like not so much like when I'm feeling it, when I was like, when it's like correct to, you know, yeah. like, so yeah. like I might feel feelings of love early on. Cause like, that's, you know, I feel that's the kind of person I am. A lot of love, um, yeah. but I yeah. wouldn't want to say it until it's like, 
oh, you know, even even if that is does express how I feel. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the the idea of saying I love you is such a big thing in the West and you, you really don't even realize it until you interact with people who are like, well, it's it's not a big deal. It's just how it is. And even when you're yeah. having these kinds of because there are some cultures where there isn't actually a word for romantic love, but mm -hmm. where people feel the same thing. So the same excitement and the same physiological responses, um, which researchers have taken to sh to mean that they also feel this idea of love. But I also think that an important issue in the West also with, um, which this is like completely my own opinion about it, it with um, being saying I love you is such a big deal is also because of this, this independence that you want to keep. And one of the key things with love is, I think, is the fact that you want it to endure. Like, and that's in a lot of definitions and the fact that you want it to go forward. And I think yeah. that this idea of committing to someone else and also a big part of love is this idea of inclusion of the other in the self. That that's yeah. a lot for people who are raised to be independent. You do your thing. You are yeah. by yourself. Yeah. So. Oof, yeah. That's, <laughs> it's it's quite a. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> just stressing out about it. Um, but also in terms of the idea of comparisons. Um, I also came across an interesting um, article that talks about um, another way that love can be looked at, which is not like addiction, but actually like OCD. And there is um, there is uh, an Italian neuroscientist. I think she's she's an MD who argues for this idea. Yeah. And there's a really cool study about it. The first the first is that they looked at people who. Um, were in love and people who were not in love and people on who had OCD. And they looked at the serotonin um, 5H platelets. And yeah. yeah, did you come across this too? And yeah, yeah, that they found cool. that, yeah. yeah, that it, that it low in patients with OCD and people who are in love, they didn't have like distinguishable amounts of serotonin platelets, but it was much less than people who didn't have OCD or who weren't in love, which is kind of, for me, it was in a way counterintuitive because I guess because we have all these kind of labels of what we put on different um, neurotransmitters and serotonin is like happiness. So you would think yeah. that there would be an increase. Um, yeah. But apparently not. Um, but so the idea is that um, when you fall in love, you have this lowering of serotonin. Um, okay. And... The, yeah. There was this one really interesting case study where um, this 22-year-old guy, he came in he came in to get treated into this clinic because every time he fell in love, he started having OCD, like fully started having like these like symmetry obsessions and counting obsessions um, and that it only happened every time that he actually fell in love with someone. And whenever they gave him like increasing of the serotonin drug so like the um you you know pharmacology it's, more than me but like the the reuptake blockers inhibitors yeah, yeah i forgot what it's called but sorry yeah. guys yeah yeah so those so they would give him those his his obsessions and like his compulsions would stop but 
invariably was, every time the relationship ended and he fell out of love no way yeah <laughs> And so then he came into their clinic and they gave him another drug that didn't influence serotonin yep. and his, his compulsions got better and he was able to continue the relationship. Um, but so the idea is that for some people, if and he had a history of OCD in his family, so his father had some OCD-like tendencies and his yep. aunt had um, a pretty intense OCD. So, yeah, so this is the... And, and the fact... <laughs> and serotonin also um, is what researchers have pointed to as responsible for the fact that you're like you have these intrusive thoughts about your partner and you're always thinking about them yeah yeah so I thought that was really interesting but I'm not sure I don't know what do you think about this idea that it is comparable to OCD because it seems like it shares this one characteristic yeah because that's the other thing it's like so I can't remember in the paper, the people who are in love and the people who have OCD, was it, did they have the same low levels or yeah. the people with the OCD? Yeah. So I feel like just because it, it has that, you know, chemical level, I don't think you can then say, cause like there's all those other characteristics that people in love, I don't think you can say that they have that because yeah. you're obsessive. Yes. But with one person, but you know, you're not, your environment not all these other things that you know is that's what you use to diagnose OCD and I think these things give us like yeah I was gonna say I think these things maybe give us like insights into what's happening and like get us closer to understanding it but I think that all of this should be like oh so this is just something that we've learned a bit more about it not like oh so therefore love is OCD therefore love is an addiction I think okay so all of these things are happening but, you know, maybe we need to come up with like, you know, love is love. And it's like these things that are happening. It doesn't have to be an addiction. It doesn't have to be an OCD. It, it can be its own definition. And we're just learning more about it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And, and also the fact that these things really interact. Like I was trying to see also whether there are links between addiction and OCD, like whether there are similar brain regions involved. And obviously like the reward system because the reward system even though it sounds like as as Beth was saying even though it sounds like it's um about like pleasure and addiction and all this stuff it's really important just for general learning um so the reward system is involved but it is like quite different or not quite different but like there are different actual specific areas that are involved so and obviously the idea is that in love and addiction dopamine is like the key player in terms of neurotransmitters whereas um in ocd it seems like it's serotonin which is also yeah, interesting i never would have thought yeah. of this um but also with this idea of serotonin um serotonin lowering some research has also shown that this leads to you being less critical of your partner and um and also leads you to having these like really intense kind of daydreams because some some work has argued because serotonin specifically the h5 is the key component in or like lsd is is modeled to be similar to this like yeah um and also in mdma serotonin h5 is involved yeah um so this is so people have also linked this to the fact that you this is why you might have like these really intense um like visions and like distortions of reality which do happen in love have you had distorted visions not 
No, what? Not, what am I missing? Come on. <laughs> no, not um, not in terms of like, like illusions, like visual illusions. But <laughs> I do think that there are. There, I do think that you think differently when you're in love, and that there are certain things that you don't see as clearly. And that's what people say that you know, love is blind because you're kind of, you know, you're cloudy. Yeah. But um, also an interesting link to this in the brain regions that are involved is that um, the reward system is obviously really activated, but also a lot of frontal regions of the brain, which are responsible for judgment and planning, and also regions that are involved in social cognition, specifically this area called the temporoparietal junction, which is really key for being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about the thoughts of someone else. Those areas, frontal regions and theory of mind regions, they are impaired when you're in love, um, which I was really surprised at this, this, especially the fact that these social cognition regions are impaired because you think, well, you're, you're having a really intense relationship with someone else and you're thinking more about the other person, but actually, um, what researchers have argued about this is that it's the idea of this inclusion of the self, uh, the other in the self, So Mm -hmm. you feel like you don't actually need to be putting yourself in that other person's shoes because you're so similar and you're so in sync that you already know. But that actually leads to that leads to the the fact that, you know, in these in these marriages that last for a long time, you know, one person at the end of 60 years might say, you know, I've always hated baked beans and you make me baked beans every and you day. you don't know, yeah. Yeah, because you just stop thinking that you need to think about the other person because you absorb them so deeply into your own, into your own person. Into, yeah, into your, yeah. And that's, I mean, it's nice, but it's also like, it just feels like a curse <laughs> yeah. of feeling like you're so close to someone, but but it's actually false and like your brain stops you from 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 being able to think about them but also being able to think more critically also with this idea of the frontal lobes being deactivated in general um another thing just because we're on all the things that happens when you're in love Mm -hmm. um they did this cool study where um they had people look at pictures of their partner yeah again someone with equal attractiveness like don't know who measured that (laughs) and then just uh, (laughs) Um, and an acquaintance that they weren't attracted to at all. And they were, um, they had like a pain block that they were feeling and they would measure their rate of pain. Um, so, you know, they do, so how this works, you do a test run where you get each level of, it was a heat one. Yeah. So you get each level of, of heat and you rate the, the pain. And then after they have that rating on you, you then were shown, shown images. And when, um, when participants saw images of of their partner who so they had to be in it had to be the early stages of relationship when they were in love they were um able to endure more more pain this was only in the early stages yeah they just did it in the yeah when that that falling falling in love stage and the areas in the brain associated with pain relief were activated. So it wasn't just like, oh, I'm not feeling pain because I'm distracted or because my reward system's activated. It's like, no, the pain relief system's activated, which I think is interesting because you could read that and be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you were distracted or you were thinking mm-hmm. about something else so you could endure more. But it's actually like, no, the, the parts of the brain that involved in pain relief were, were activated when you saw 
saw your your partner here in love with do you know whether this like the pain relief system that they're talking about is this like in the frontal like control areas of the brain or more like in like more pleasure related um amygdala and lateral orbitofrontal cortex okay so yeah okay that's interesting because i i also read a similar study um where they also i i'm not sure if they were if it was pain or i mean if it was heat or if they were shocking people psychologists love Mm -hmm. to do that you can shock people still by the way so people know that you are still allowed to do that yeah i've my current research is shocking people by the way Uh, it's it's a tolerable maximum tolerable level of pain that's the 10 um anyways That's a look into research. But um, there's also a study where they they did something similar where they had people um, either holding hand, not holding anyone's hand, holding like a re- one of the researchers' hands or holding their partner's hand. I think these were pretty long-term relationships um, yeah. when they were getting shocks. And they found that if you were holding anyone's hand, you were feeling, you were self-reported feeling less pain. And more so if it was your partner, but that it actually wasn't like the frontal regions involved in controlling the pain that were that were more active because you'd think, okay, well, you know, everything's okay. Like I can, you know, talk myself through this because my my partner is here. My the researcher is here. Like it'll be fine. (laughs) But it was actually just that those areas were more deactivated and the pain regions were just deactivated. So the idea is that. If you're like, right. we should be around people because that makes things just better for you without Easy. even having to control yeah. it. But it yeah. sounds like it's kind of a different result from. Yeah, I think this this is different. Also, I guess, well, in this one, you weren't, you didn't actually have someone physically present. Oh. So you know, this is just this is just images you're looking at. Oh, I see. That's interesting. So I think that 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 would come, like that that would be where the difference is. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, so basically the whole brain is doing some some things when you're around people, especially people you love. Um, and a lot of neurotransmitters are involved, especially at the beginning. Um, yeah, oxytocin, totally at the beginning, you kind of have research shows that you have an increase also in cortisol, which is known mm-hmm. as the stress hormone. Um and that's why you also become really anxious when you're around the person that you're maybe starting to have a relationship with. Um, I've definitely had this experience where, like, I can't eat when I'm around someone that I... Yeah, yeah. Um, you also you have that at the beginning and, and at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the end. Um, but those cortisol levels at the beginning, at, at the first few months of a relationship, they're, they're elevated, but 12 months to... 14 months later they're back to normal so if you're freaking out around your partner now you'll you'll be okay if you waited out you're right don't worry yeah um and then as it goes on you know uh love has been shown to really change um as you continue through a relationship and this intense like passionate um stressful feeling kind of gets replaced with this idea of companionate love which is more oxytocin heavy and is more about the bond that you share with someone but this also like not to say that this is not as good because this can be really really rewarding for the people who are involved and 
um, yeah, building, you know, that partnership, you know, partnership. goal, <laughs> hashtag goals. Is that what that is? <laughs> um, but yeah. And then, and then when you break up, that's when, that's our final step. You either make it or you break yeah. up. You, what was it? You make it and lose all sense of, no, all sense of them and only sense of self yeah. or you break up. So. Yeah. And then when you break up, that's when this idea of addiction comes into it, right? So Yeah. So the same regions actually in the reward system are activated, um, specifically this this area called the ventral tegmental area or the VTA. Um, and this region is uh, one of the key regions also for dopamine production and it projects dopamine, dopaminergic neurons all throughout the brain. And it's also very active in the beginning of the relationship when you're all butterfly and when you've been, when you're a spurned lover. <laughs> that's, that's a quote from research, from papers. It, it, it is a quote from the paper. Um, yeah. And the idea is, so the, that's this idea of the distinction between like being happy and, and liking your relationship versus just wanting something and being motivated to like get the person back and like craving for that person. Yeah. So that's also the idea yeah. of, yeah. um, addiction yeah but, and that's why people can do yeah wild things when they've been broken up with and stuff you wouldn't normally do and yeah not speaking from experience as you can tell <laughs> what no <laughs> yeah um but one one last interesting thing that I thought that these addiction papers um showed was this idea yeah. of not of of formulating love in in relation with like different disorders or addiction or something like this like not that it says something about love but saying something about how you could treat addictions which I think is still a far cry but there was one study um I think from Sue et al et al (laughs) research um who who looked at people who were addicted to cigarettes and who smoked cigarettes and they found that people who were in love and who had a partner that they were really um, attached to and I think also felt passionate about they had less of a response to an image of a lit cigarette in the reward areas and more of a response to the person that they loved so there's this idea that love could kind of be like a replacement treatment but you can't really tell someone to just fall in love so oh, I get. <laughs> the usefulness of that is also I'm um, not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Skeptical. But, um. <laughs> but I thought that was really interesting that if you were in love, I guess it's also because you just in a way stop caring about other things as much. Other stuff. Yeah. But, but maybe, maybe this is, this could be an intervention in the sense that if you happen to be in a relationship and be in that early stage Maybe that's the time you should try to quit smoking. smoking. Yeah. <laughs> so that's our advice. That's our minds matter advice. Quit smoking if you fall in love. Go for it. That's your. That is your moment, buddy. You go for it. And if you're on a first date, take them somewhere where there will be stress. Maybe work out with them. Take them on a yeah. scary bridge, heights, CN Tower for my Toronto listeners. Yeah. Distance, but make sure that they like you. If they don't like yeah, you, then sure. you're wasting oh. your time. You'll never see them again. Bad, bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Any last final thoughts, Beth? Um, no, I think we've, I think you summed it up pretty nicely. And I've, I feel like though I do have some more advice when I'll jump back on Hinge, <laughs> thinking about who I'm going to send my, send my likes to. <laughs> this is a very practical episode of, of Minds Matter. This is, we're giving you concrete advice today. So for our, for our hosts and our listeners. <laughs> so um, let us know if you take our advice. If anyone's yeah. still here at the 56 minute mark. Oh dear. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> shoot me a message if you're still here. <laughs> Inbox <laughs> empty. Okay. All right. We're going to get Glacio to take us out as usual.